Well, um, for those of you that are online this morning, uh, I am not Pastor Tim Romero, so do not judge our church by the abilities of the man who is stepping in. So we hope that uh, you continue to watch online and come visit us on Sundays at 10 o'clock. So what are we doing here today? Well, we're supposed to be praising the Lord. We're supposed to be learning about who He is and what His call uh, on our life is. And there's, some, there's kind of a, been a current that Tim and I have been talking about and the other elders and even in the congregation about, man, things are getting real crazy in the world, right? Man, we must be getting close to the Lord coming back. Amen? So I thought from the prompting of Tim, because the last thing he told me was, maybe you can come up with something that will remind people how close we are. And so I thought that I would do not a normal teaching that we've done before or that I've done before too, but I would kind of give us a little prophecy update so we can see just where we are in the prophetic time frame. You guys good with that? Okay, good, because that's what it's going to be anyway. So um, if you would, if you have your Bible with you, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Scotty will get you one. If you could turn to Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46, and we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. And it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Father, we thank you for being the God who does declare the end from the beginning, Lord. You were the one who was wise and we're not. And so, Father, your word asks us and tells us that if we lack wisdom to ask, and you'll freely give it. So, Father, today we pray that you would open up our eyes to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would know just where we are and how close it is for your soon return. And knowing that, Lord, that we would be reminded that we are servants of the Most High God. And our calling and our job is to know you and to make you known to a dying world. So we thank you for your word now, and we ask that you would be glorified and that all of us, Lord, would decrease today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so that verse, there's the there's purpose of the verse. Number one, it tells you that the God that we serve can tell you things that are going to happen centuries and millennia in the future, and you can trust him. Now, it also is there for a reason. He doesn't want us to miss what's going on. He doesn't want us to be caught spiritually sleeping, to use that term. He wants us to see what's going on in the world and compare it to the Word of God and know where we are. Because you don't want to be, you know, the parable of the, of the ten virgins, right? Those that had the oil and were ready... And those that ran out of their oil, and so when the bridegroom came, they were out of luck. We don't want to be those brides that are waiting and not have enough oil. We want to be ready for the Lord. We want to be prepared for him. We want to be doing what he's called us to do when he returns. We don't want to be asleep. So then, can we trust prophecy? Can we trust the Word of God when it comes to prophetic things? Some people are like, well, it's just all allegory. It's all symbolism. We can't really put it together right. Things happen by, you know, circumstance or it's a coincidence. But no, it's not because the Word of God is true and it's living and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen? So let's look at some things. The historicity of the Bible. I kind of taught a little about this at the men's uh, Bible study a couple weeks ago, but I thought it was important. The historical evidence of the Bible. Do you know how scholars determine if any ancient book, I mean, just take a book of literature, how they take that book that's found and determine if it's an original or if it's a copy, is it close to the original where they can say, yes, this is authentic? Well, how do they do it? They have to compare it to accepted um, originals that they do have. In other words, you got to know the real deal if you want to find the counterfeit. Does that make sense? If you had a $20 bill in your pocket and it had um, Scotty Tate's picture on it, would you know it's a fake? Yeah, amen. Because we know what's supposed to be on a $20 bill, amen? 
So we got to know the Word of God. we got to know the real deal so we can pick out the counterfeits because there's a lot of counterfeits out there. There's a lot of doctrines out there. There's a lot of denominations and non-Christian faiths that say they've got the truth. They've got the answer. But we know what Jesus said. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. So we've got to know the real deal. So using the idea of how scholars in a non-biblical sense compare books and writings to find out if they're, if they're originals or if they're true copies, okay, we're going to take that same scientific thought process and we're going to apply it to Scripture. Okay? So they take, a, they take a, a writing and they compare it to accepted writings they know are true and they look for discrepancies. They look for contextual discrepancies. They look for, uh, they look for um, the, the thoughts and the ideas that are in there to make sure they follow in line with the originals. And the second thing they do is they will actually compare the writings of historians of that time period and see if they wrote about this person or this book. And they compare to make sure those mesh uh, perfectly. And that's what they do. Well, guess what, guys? We have the same thing with Scripture. Did you know that we have over 5,000 original Greek manuscripts? 5,000. Now, of course, they're copies, right? They're copies, but there's over 5,000. And then they take those copies and they compare it to writings of early church fathers, first and second century church fathers, and they make sure that the thematic uh, ideas and theological ideas and doctrines come together. We also have very early uh, um, translations like the Latin Vulgate, okay? And they compare it to that too. When you add those all together, we wind up with almost 24,000 texts. 24,000 texts that they're able to compare the Bible we have today to make sure that it comes together properly. Now, let's think about this. Um, The Old Testament scriptures, thousands of years old. But then, of course, they find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody remember when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. Now, that was a big deal. And why? Because they take the scripture, the Old Testament scripture we have today, and they compare it to these ancient Dead Sea Scrolls. And, of course, it took them years to decipher them and put it together because there's a lot of fragments, right? And guess what? They match perfectly. You can read sections of the Dead Sea Scrolls that are thousands of years old, with what we have today in, New, in Old Testament Scripture, and they are perfect. So all that to say, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Word of God 100%. Amen? Okay, so, but again, why are numbers so important? The 24,000 texts, why is it important? Well, how many of you here played the game of telephone when you were a kid? Now, you younger kids may not know what that is, the game of telephone. Now, for those of you that have never played it, okay, it's real simple. You get a circle of people, and you whisper some thing, some sentence, some fact into the first person's ear. And what they're supposed to do is pass it on all the way around the circle until it comes back to the original person, right? Now, guess what? Does it normally come back the way it started? (laughs) No. It gets totally changed. So the idea here is, The Word of God is not like the game of telephone because what we started with, the manuscripts, the copies, they compare perfectly to what we have today. Now, if they were just written by a man and not inspired by the Word of God, then you would find discrepancies. Things would get changed just like in the the game or the book of telephone, game of telephone. There would be so many changes in those 24,000 texts that we have. But guess what, guys? The theological and doctrinal issues are 100% intact. There are a very few minor textual discrepancies. Uh, a copies that were done where it was supposed to be 17,000 or whatever, and it came out to maybe 7,000. Okay? In other words, there was a copy error, but the, but the context is 100% accurate as far as who his God is and what the, well, the, the thematical unit was. It's perfect. So again, we can trust the Word of God. Okay, so, what about prophecy? 
Well, does anybody know how many prophecies are in the Old Testament? And if you do, you're, you're doing pretty good because I had to search it out, okay? In the Old Testament, there's 1,239 Old Testament prophecies. In the New Testament, there's 578 for a whopping total of 1,817 prophecies. Almost 2,000 prophecies in the Word of God. Now, they're contained in 31,124 verses. And if you do the math on that, that tells you that the Word of God is almost one-third prophecy. Now, no other book in the history of the world, no other faith, the, the, the Quran, the, the, the uh, Oriental books of the, of the Hindus, none of them, the Book of Mormon, if you name it, it's not going to be full of prophecy. Our Bible is the only one that tells the end from the beginning because he is the true and living God. So all that again said, you can trust the Bible. Now, of the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled, because a lot have been fulfilled, guess what the percentage of accuracy is? 100%. 100%. If it was foretold in the Old Testament and that prophecy came true, it's not 90% true. It's not 75% true. It's 100% the way it was stated. Which brings me to the, uh, the thought, what is God's standard for a prophet? Well, that's found in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, 18 20, 22. It basically says that if a prophet of God says anything and it does not come to pass, that is not a prophet of God. Get rid of them. So God doesn't grade on a curve. I mean, no, remember when you're in school and, and you got a 90% and you were happy with that, right? Or you got a 70 and you just passed by the skin of your teeth, you were happy with that? Well, God's standard is not that way. His standard is 100%. So if there's a prophecy, it's going to happen. The ones that were foretold and were fulfilled, 100%. So then, if the ones that were fulfilled were 100% accurate, why would we even think that the ones that are still yet to come aren't going to be 100%? See, that, that boggles my mind that people think, well, you know, it, it, again, it's just all symbolism and we can't know what it really means. Well, yeah, we can, because God's pretty clear. When he's comparing something and using simile or metaphor, he tells you plainly, it's like this or it's like that. But then there are those prophecies and scriptures that tell you exactly what you're supposed to see. So we know that they were good then, 100%, and what's coming is going to be 100% also. So with that, we're going to get into prophecy update. You ready? Buckle up. We're going to be moving here a little bit, okay? Where are we on the time clock then? I mean, if you listen to the scientists, right, they have that nuclear time clock. They say we're like two minutes from midnight. And, of course, midnight meaning it's all going to blow up and we're all gone. Well, we know from the Word of God that that's not going to happen, right? What we're looking for, not the end of the world, but we're looking for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to set the world straight and put his kingdom back on this earth and make it the way it was supposed to be. So that's what we're looking for. But are we getting close to that time when things are going to fall apart? Well, you know, you've heard Pastor Tim many times from the pulpit, and, of course, other pastors that you probably listen to or watch on TV, they all talk about, man, we're so close. We're in the last days. The Lord's coming soon. Well, how many of you believe that? I do. There's two or three others. Amen. God bless you. Okay. And some say, well, you know what, they've been saying that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that we're in the last days. Well, where's the evidence of that? Well, those are the scoffers that the Scripture talks about, okay? And all I can tell you is this, that uh, when I was a younger man in my 20s, and, and I was talking to somebody about the Lord returning, because I thought it was going to be like the next week when I was about 22, right? Um, and that's what they told me. They said, they've been saying that for hundreds of years, and they even reminded me, I remember, because this is an older gentleman, he goes, I remember they were telling me that Hitler was the Antichrist and the Lord was coming back in a very short period of time. Well, you know, I've seen ser old sermons where they talked about that. 
whoops, sorry. However, there's one problem with saying that he was the Antichrist and the, the, the rapture of the church was coming and the Lord was coming back. And that's Israel was not a nation. See, Israel is God's time clock. Some folks don't like that. There are believers um, that do not think that Israel has any place in prophecy today. However, um, the word of God is pretty clear, right? It's extremely clear. So Israel was not a nation in the 30s and 40s, right? Early, early 30s and 40s. So people saying that, oh, the time is at the, is at the end right now, they're so wrong. Because Israel was not a nation until guess when? We just celebrated their 70th anniversary. Well, it was last week, May 14th, 1948. That's when things really started to kick off. And so we're going to talk about those a little bit, okay? If, uh, if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, and we're going to read verses 11 and 12. Ezekiel 37, verses 11 and 12. So it says, And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, you have to understand, that was a fulfilled prophecy, May 14, 1948, when they were recognized by the United Nations and the majority of the world as a sovereign nation. For almost 2,000 years after they were destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, which is important, by the way, destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, the city and the temple were destroyed, and the people were cast out into the, what we call the diaspora, and they became slaves throughout the world, Okay. So for 2,000 years, there was really no nation of Israel again. They were pretty much destitute. The land was destitute. It became a swampland. Nothing grew until God brought his people back. And that was on May 4th. Well, they came back a little bit, about 10 years before. There's always been a presence there, by the way. But the point is, he reunified his nation and established it in a day, May 14th, 1948. So there's a prophecy that was fulfilled, okay? So if God fulfilled a prophecy like that, that took 2,000 years, and by the way, what people group do you know that was ever conquered by another nation and put into slavery and taken from their homeland? What people group in the history of mankind kept their, their language, kept their, their religion, and came back to their homeland. Can you think of one? Because there isn't. Every nation that's ever been conquered and put into slavery in those nations assimilate. After generations, they have just been brought in as one of their own. They have never come back to their homeland. And they definitely don't keep their language. They take on the language of that culture. So that's a miracle in itself that they kept all those three things, their, their language, their faith, and their homeland after over 2,000 years. So how close are we? Well, May 14th, 1948, that was a big thing. Again, they just recently, major celebration. And not only that there was their 70th anniversary, okay, but they're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, we, of course, say, well, he's coming back a second time. They're looking for the first one. We have some friends that are from Israel, um, good, good, they're good brother and sister. They're messianic, okay? Um, when they left Israel about 12, 13, no, about 14, 15 years ago, uh, Danny is his name, he, he told me, you know what? The idea of Jesus coming and looking for the Messiah and the rebuilding of the temple within the Jewish uh, people was pretty much about less than 10%. They were very secular. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They absolutely didn't think they needed a temple whatsoever. But it's amazing, 15 years later, they went back two years ago. When we came here, they went back to Israel. And he's told me it's amazing. The, it's, just, it's just the excitement is in the air. The people of Israel are looking for their Messiah. Of course, they may not think he's Jesus, right? 
but they're still looking for a Messiah. And not only that, I think it's almost 62% of the secular Jewish population, non-believing Jews, think they need to rebuild their temple, which is a fulfillment, again, of prophecy. So you've got 62% of non-believing Jews think they need to have the temple again. Who would think that? But see, those are things that are happening right now in the time that we live in. But let's move on. So Jesus uh, talked about, you know, when, uh, when you see these things happening, look up because your redemption draws nigh, right? Well, when he was uh, on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him and asked him a question there in Matthew, right? He, he was asked three questions, and those three questions were these. When will these things be that he's talking about? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, those are three different questions. But he was pretty clear. He said, you know what, All, a bunch of things are going to happen, and you can go to uh, uh, 24 and read it. But this is what he said that really sticks out. When you see these things happening, look up because your redemption draws nigh. He's even at the door. Think about that. Did you see Israel become a nation in 1948? Some of you may have. Most of you probably didn't. But we know we're, we're close to it. So if you have your Bible, and you don't even have to turn, I'm just going to read it for you. Psalm 90, verse 10. Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now think about that. Scripture's pretty clear. We get around 70 to 80 years. That's typically the average lifespan. Granted, there are those that live much longer and those that live much shorter, okay? But the average lifespan of man in the world is between 70 and 80 years. Now, Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up because I'm coming back, right? Okay? Well, let's do a little math. 70 years from 1948. Think about that. Why do you think they just celebrated their 70th anniversary as a nation? 70 years. And then maybe 80 through strength. Not sure exactly what that means, okay? But maybe it's 80 years. Okay, well then add 80 to 1948, right? Now, am I saying Jesus must come back at the end of that 70 or 80 years? No, because he also said no man will know the day or the hour. Amen? Which, by the way, and I'm going to take a little side here, um, is a reason why we as Calvary believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And here's why. Now, I, I studied all three views, okay? Um, before I made up my mind. Because we're supposed to be good Bereans. We're not supposed to take somebody else's thoughts or ideas. We're supposed to study the Word of God and show ourselves approved in Second Timothy, right? So that's what I did. And the only, the only view that, to me, matches Scripture 100% is the pre-tribulation rapture. And I'll tell you why. Will we know when the, the, uh, the tribulation period begins? Yes, we will know when it begins because we know that it begins with the confirming or signing of a peace treaty by that man we refer to as the Antichrist, right? Okay, so when we see that peace treaty in place, we know that's when the tribulation begins because that's what the Word of God says. Well, if you know when the beginning is, do you know when the end is? Well, if you can add seven, right, because we know the tribulation is seven years. Well, if you know when the end is, then the idea of a post-trib rapture is blown out of the water because no man will know the day or the hour. So I'll know when the end is. Well, that can't be. Well, there are those that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, that we're going to go through the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, and then God's going to take us out before the real bad stuff happens. Well, that's crazy because there's millions and millions of people that will be killed in the first half. Right? Pestilence and wars and famines, even in the first half. So um, those that say we're going to be taken out midway, well, wait a minute. Once again, if you know the beginning, do you know the middle? Yeah, you do. So that theory gets blown out of the water. No man will know the day or the hour. That's why we are looking for the imminent return of Christ. And that means it could happen any day. It could happen today. 
It could happen tomorrow. It could happen 10 years or 20 years from now. But what we do know is the Word of God says when you see these things happening, referring to Israel and what's going on in the world, look up because it's near. It's close. And then we can also use the Scripture like in, uh, in Psalm 90 to know, you know what? Things are coming to a close here pretty soon. And then what that tells me is I need to be ready. Because I will be honest with you, there's times in my life that, you know, even though I was a believer, I kind of did my own thing. Wasn't too concerned with, you know, what's God's call for my life? Am I serving him with all my heart? I basically served myself for many, many years. And there was a time that when I rededicated my life, I still wasn't doing the things that I was supposed to be doing because I was still kind of doing the church thing. I went to church. I went to Bible studies. But you know what? I still don't think that I was really doing what God called me to do because it's not about rules and regulations. It's not about I'm doing these things, right? Because we're saved by grace. It's by faith. Nothing that we could ever do could ever pay for one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us on Calvary. So I can't work my way to heaven. It's by grace and by faith through Jesus alone. And so what I'm saying is when we see what's going on, we need to kind of do a heart check. We need to ask ourselves, am I serving the Most High God? Because in my life, there was many years that I've wasted, I'll be honest with you. But the Lord, through his grace and mercy, reminded me what I'm supposed to be about. I mean, what is our motto here at Calvary? It's to know him and make him known. But I've got a little caveat to that. You know, in the, in the, in the scripture where it says that there at the end, there will be many coming before him, right? And he'll say, hey, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you. But they're like, but wait a minute, we did this in your name and we did that in your name. Well, those are things they were doing, right? But remember what he said, and this stuck with me, and it really did. He said, I never knew you. You see, we can know Jesus, but it's a head knowledge. The scripture says the demons believe, yet they tremble. Now think about that. They have a head knowledge of who he is. They saw him in his glory before the creation of the world because they were there before they were cast out. So we can know Jesus. We can know all about him. But does he know us? And that's what really stuck me. See, I want him to say to me and to you and to everyone here, when you go before him, I want him to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's because he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your soul. And that doesn't come through coming to church on Sunday. It doesn't really come through reading your Bible every day because those are things that I did. But I didn't know who he was. I had a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. You see, I've, I've said this before, and you've probably heard it before. The, the distance between heaven and hell is how, how far? It's 18 inches. And when I've told that to people that are non-believers, they're looking like, what are you talking about, 18 inches? I go, yeah. The distance between heaven and hell is 18, going from your head knowledge to your heart knowledge. So you can be in church your whole life. You could be raised in church. You could be somebody involved in leadership in the church because we know that there are examples of people that have been involved in church, been pastors in churches, and have fallen away and rejected Christ. Did they really know who he was? I don't think so. So with all that said, we need to make sure that because we see Scripture being fulfilled and we know he's at the door, do you have a relationship with him? Not a ritual, not a set of rules. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And does he know you? That's the point. The head knowledge and the heart knowledge. So let's, let's move on, okay? Okay, so... So in Israel, they're ready for the Messiah. They're ready to build the temple. Did you know that the Temple Institute has everything ready to build the temple? All of the articles that they need to do their, their services, okay, to do all of the slayings and the sacrifices, they're done. Uh, they have the golden menorah. I mean, they've, they've had that for almost a decade now. They have all the priestly garments. Do you know through what, what I think is awesome, 
the Human Genome Project that was done probably 20 years ago. Anybody familiar with the Human Genome Project? They, it was a scientific uh, group, and they basically were looking at the genome, uh, all of our DNA structure, okay? Well, guess what they found? They found a specific genetic marker for Jewish men from the Levi tribe. Now, why is that important? Well, to be able to work in the temple and do sacrifices, guess what tribe you have to be from? The Levites, the Cohen. Now, they have that test now. They have been testing men in Israel for 20 years. They know exactly who can be used for temple service, and they actually have a cadre of men who are ready to step in at any time. They've trained them. They've prepared them. They have the Sanhedrin again. No, Sanhedrin, wait, wasn't that in Jesus' time? Yeah, the Sanhedrin who basically condemned him to death, right? The Sanhedrin is there right now. Seventy leaders within the religious community, ready to step in. They have all the things ready to go to build the temple. They just need somebody that says, go ahead and build it. Who do you think that's going to be? I don't know. Could be a world leader that's not the man of sin. But you know, if, a, if, a, if somebody from the world stage came up and said, you know what, I've got the answers for peace in the Middle East. But in order to have this, we need to compromise a little bit. You need to let the Jews build their temple. Don't you think the Jews would see him as the Messiah? Allowing them to bring their temple again and start the sacrifices and the worship? I think so. And there's a number of people in the, in the wings right now that are coming up with some pretty good ideas. The uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, he told the Palestinians, which that's always been a contention since 1948, right? Um, they've been offered many, many times peace, but they refuse it every time. Well, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia told the Palestinian Authority about three weeks ago, you know what, guys? It's time for you to shut up with what you're doing, and you need to accept the peace agreement that's going to be coming soon. Now think about that. That's coming soon. Our own president is getting ready to release another peace initiative uh, in June. It's going to roll it out. And he has support of many of the Arab nations. Okay? So I'm not saying that he's the Antichrist. I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong, okay? But what I'm saying is it's ripe for a period of peace right now. There's so much going on in the world that the, the Muslim nations and the Jewish nation are looking for a way to have peace. Would you ever think that the nations of Saudi Arabia and a lot of the, uh, the OPEC nations would be allied with Israel? No, they, they used to be their mortal enemies. But now they're working together. And there's a reason why they're working together. Because they're working together against their arch enemy, which is Iran, also known as Persia, okay? which we're going to get into real quick. So they're ready. They're ready for a Messiah. They're ready to build that temple. They just need some time and a person to do it. So, um, again, are we in the last days? Well, we know the Scripture says that he's going to bring his nation back and establish it. And then at some point in time, there's going to be another war. Okay? And that comes from Ezekiel 30, uh, 38. So I want to read that to you, Ezekiel 38. Um, it's a little bit long. So I'm th I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first couple of verses and go down to verse 8. This is Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Tubal and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And then it goes down a little bit towards uh, uh, verse 5. He says, uh, per, uh, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them. And then in uh, 6, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Garma, uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. And then down here in 38, And after many days you will be mustered, or brought in, right? In the latter days you will go against the land that is restored from war, whose people were gathered from many nations upon the mountain of, mountains of Israel, which had been a continual wasteland, its people who were brought out of the peoples and now dwell securely. Again, that's Israel. They were brought out of the nations after the reestablishment in 48. 
I mean, think about it. Uh, back in the 90s, the, uh, Russia, which is still the Soviet Union at the time, let their walls down and allowed Jews to leave Russia. And they did that for a period of seven to ten years. And then the walls came right back up. That was God working in the hearts of those leaders to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. And it's been happening all around the world. They have come back to the nation of Israel, just like it says right here. But notice who the players are. Okay, Who are the players in Ezekiel 38? Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, Beth to Garma. And, of course, we all know who those folks are, right? Well, I didn't. Did a little studying on it years ago. Did a lot of studying on it this, this past, past month. But let's talk about it. Gog of Magog. Well, all these people, people groups, they're sons of Japheth. They're all sons of Japheth. And they all settled in the area that's north of Israel for the most part. Um, Magog, it's around the Caspian and Black Sea area, up into the Ural Mountains, okay, southern parts of, of, uh, of Russia there today. Meshach and Tubal, the Armenian region, and eastern Turkey. Of course, Persia, we know who that is. No offense, Aaron. Okay. We know who Persia is. That's Iran today. Cush, Ethiopia and the Sudan area. Put, that's Libya, North African nations, Libya. Beth Togarma, again, the Armenian region there near the, um, the Black Seas. And then Gomer, north of the Black Sea area, possibly in the southern Russian area. But notice, they're all in the area of Turkey and just above Turkey. All right? To me, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense to me. So when does the attack come? We know who's involved, right? We know who's involved. As a matter of fact, let me read you something about who's involved, right? I really believe Turkey is going to play a major part. Now, um, the prime minister of Turkey, his name is uh, uh, Recep um, Erdogan, okay? About 12 years ago, Israel and Turkey were staunch allies. Their armies shared intelligence. They did war games together, okay? So they were extremely close. They shared uh, vacation sites in each other's nations. But about 12 years ago, the parliament of Turkey voted in a Muslim parliament. It used to be secular. They protected everybody's religion, right? But a Muslim parliament was voted in. And it was kind of a downhill slide ever since. And today, they've actually expelled each other's um, ambassadors. Just happened last week, Turkey got rid of uh, the ambassadors, sent them home. And all, not only did they send the ambassadors home, they humiliated the Israeli ambassador from Turkey. When he was at the airport getting ready to get on the plane with diplomatic immunity, right, they actually humiliated him by searching him and emptying all of his pockets in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. That's not heard of within the political and diplomatic um, fields. You're supposed to give them courtesy and respect. Uh, Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, within the last year, uh, made a speech, and he was basically promising to lead the Muslim army to liberate the nation of Israel and to give Jerusalem back to the people that it belongs to, which, in their opinion, is the Muslims. But I'm scratching my head. I'm going, this guy is the leader of a NATO country. Okay, Turkey is a NATO ally. We share intelligence. We share military with them. How can a NATO country turn so quickly? Well, it's because I truly believe that God is the one that's orchestrating nations. And so now the nation that used to be the number one Muslim ally in the world to Israel is almost the, the most that hates it. Iran is the, is the one that hates them the most, but Turkey is getting very close. Just last week, um, Erdogan called for all Muslim nations to come together and band together and fight against Israel. Crazy stuff. But, of course, the Scripture talked about it. Who was going to come against Israel? They're one of them because all of those areas are part of modern-day Turkey. Okay, so, uh, talking about how they were old friends and, new, and uh, now they're new enemies... Um, just last week, or two weeks ago, Erdogan 
um, President Putin and uh, the leader of Iran, uh, Rouhani, they all had a meeting in Moscow. Those three, those three individuals of those three nations had a meeting. And guess what they talked about? How they're going to combat Israel in the Middle East. Former ally, Turkey, now is working with Russia and Iran on how they're going to combat Israel in the Middle East. And by the way, did you know that uh, if, it, if Russia is part of it, which you know, it's, it's possible up in the Ural Mountain area, where Gomer was, okay? If Russia is part of it, they don't have to travel thousands of miles to get to Israel any longer. Because the scripture says the, the horde is going to come across the mountains, right? A great army that has never been seen before. Well, they don't got to come that whole distance. You know why? Because with the, the destruction of the Syrian forces, okay, and ISIS coming in, right now we have Iran with their, with their bases, we have Turkey with bases, and we have Russia with bases right in Syria, right across the Golan Heights from Israel. So they don't have to go a long way to make an attack. They're already there. If you remember, oh, probably a month and a half ago, maybe, there was a drone that was sent into Israel from the Iranians from Syria. Anybody remember that? And if you don't, I'll tell you. The Iranians sent a, a, a drone in to Israel, and it was a weaponized drone. Well, of course, Israel took it out. And then Israel said, that ain't going to happen again. So they did a, a fighter attack, and they took out the base where that drone was sent from. Well, the Iranians, not wanting to be upstaged, they decided to, uh, probably about a week and a half ago, they sent a whole barrage of 25 to 28 missiles into Israel. Most of them didn't make it. Most of them landed in Syria, um, and the rest of them were taken out by the Iron Dome. Well, guess what Israel did? They said, okay, you're going to play that game? So Israel made one of the most extensive incursions into Syria in their history. And they took out every single Iranian base that they knew was there. It was massive. There were, what, were, what I've been reading, there's hundreds of Syrian, Iranian, and even Russian military personnel that were killed. Because remember, Russia and Syria and Turkey and Iran are all working together at these bases. So it's not like he, we, they were discriminate. They hit the base and whoever was there was gone. So that's infuriated all these nations. So just the mindset of what's going on is we're right at the door. We know there's going to be some attack coming, and we know it's going to be soon. So um, what about coming in? Why are they coming in? Well, they're coming in to take a spoil, okay? Um, and that was uh, Ezekiel 38, verses 10 and 12. And I'll just kind of synopsis real quick. Uh, 38.12 says, um, you have come in to take a spoil and to plunder. So they're going to take a spoil. Well, what, what, what do they have in Israel that's a spoil? Well, is it agriculture? Well, if you didn't know this, um, Israel is the number one exporter of fruits and vegetables in the Middle East right now to Europe. I mean, it, that, that wasteland that was nothing but a swamp and nothing was growing for 2,000 years, when the Israelis were brought back to their nation, it is now, it's, it's growing like crazy. It's like a greenhouse. They're the number one producer of fruits and vegetables to, to Europe. Okay? Is that the spoil? I don't know. But I'll tell you what I think is, and I'm going to read it for you. Israel, Greece, and Cyprus held their fourth meeting this year. Israel, Greece, and Cyprus. Prime Minister Netanyahu held meetings with these nations uh, on Tuesday in, in April, and they said they're going to follow it up with another trilateral meeting for the East Mediterranean Pipeline. They're calling it East Med. In April 2017, Israel signed a joint declaration with Cyprus, Greece, and Italy to move forward with the construction of an undersea natural gas pipeline known as East Med. The pipeline is proposed to be over 2,200 kilometers long to bring gas from Israel's gas fields to Cyprus, Greece, Italy, and eventually all of Europe. It says the East Med pipeline is a serious endeavor. It is very important not only for those countries involved, but it is important for Europe who wants to be diverse 
from natural gas sources. What do you mean diverse? Well, right now, Russia has a stranglehold. Russia controls the vast majority of natural gas that goes into Europe. So they kind of got to play nice with Russia, otherwise they're going to turn off the tap, okay? Basically, it's, uh, it's economic um, uh, ransom is what it is. So with Israel finding these huge uh, gas deposits off the, the coast there, I think it's called, one of them is called the, the Leviathan. That's amazing, kind of a neat word that they, they chose, the, the Leviathan gas field. They say it's one of the largest natural gas fields in the history of the world which is going to make Israel probably the number one natural gas exporter in the world. So if they're building this pipeline, which, by the way, it's supposed to be completed by 2025, that's the completion date. That's seven years away, right? That's a very short period of time. Well, if that's going to basically cause Russia to lose billions of dollars in natural gas sales, and their economy, by the way, is in shambles, right? Boy, wouldn't that be a great spoil to come in and take over? They would not only have the, the stranglehold to Europe that they originally had, but now they're going to have the largest gas uh, reserves in the world. Boy, they could put the screws to everybody. Talking about being a, a, an economic powerhouse. So is that the spoil? It's very possible. It's very possible natural gas will be the spoil that causes that nation or those group of nations to come in to take. So, okay, is Europe ready? Well, we've got, we got some slides that we're going to pop up here, and I apologize. I'm probably going to have to kind of turn around and look and see what's up there. But Europe is getting ready for what we call the tribulation period, right? Um, their focus for a number of years has been to get away from uh, religious systems and to be one again, as like in the Tower of Babel. Now, let's see what we got up here. Do we have the one on the Tower of Babel in the EU Parliament? Now, I say that they're ready. Okay. Many tongues, one voice. Many tongues, one voice. Now, does anybody kind of remember what that looks like? What was that? Tower of Babel. Now, notice the stars. Well, I'm sorry about that. Did you notice the stars were upside down? Okay, the stars, they're upside down. Well, those stars are typically used in the occult practices, the upside-down star, right? Okay, now let's go to the next one. Now, this one shows you the rendering. It's a, it's a 15th century rendering of the Tower of Babel, right? It's a painting of a, of a very famous painter. And that is the actual EU Parliament building, the United or the, the European Union Parliament building. Does it... Does it look familiar? Does it look familiar? Absolutely it looks familiar. Now, why would they do that? Why would they take something that in our mindset as believers, right, and want to design their parliament building after? It's because the spirit that is leading them and preparing them for what's coming is the same spirit that led to the Tower of Babel. See, they don't want God in their lives. They think they can accomplish everything on their own. Kind of boastful, kind of prideful, right? Which we know that the one who was the most prideful was Satan himself because he wanted to be like the Most High God, right? Let's go to the next one. Europe, are they ready? Well, let's find out. We're going to try to go to the next one. Okay, that's kind of grainy, right? But in, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the woman who rides the beast, if, if you've ever remembered reading that, the woman that rides the beast, okay? Well, this is a European stamp from the European Union. Now, there's a woman, and what is she riding on? A beast. And she's being, it's being led by an angel, which is what the scripture says, right? Now, it's kind of hard to make out, um, but on the bottom here, you see a dolphin, okay? That kind of resembles rising up out of the waters, which exactly is what the scripture says, that this, this beast is going to rise up out of the water, right? And it also says in a couple other scriptures that it sits on seven hills. Okay, the, the place of authority sits on seven hills. Okay, the, the mystery Babylon, okay? It's kind of hard to see, but if you can see the waves, let me, let me, excuse me, here's one of them right here, okay? There are seven waves. 
There's seven waves, if you're, if you're able to see it better. I have highlights for that, okay? Well, that's a representation of the seven hills. Do you think they're getting ready for what's coming? I would, I would think so. Let's go to the next one. Is that a woman riding the beast? Think so? That's right outside their, um, their office buildings at the parliament. That's Europa. And if you know anything about Europa, that's where they got the name Europe from. Okay? She's riding on the back of a beast. Now notice, she doesn't have the bull by the horns. Basically, she's holding on. She's holding on, and the bull, the beast, is going wherever it wants to go. Let's do one more. Let's do the next one. This one is outside the parliament building also. Same thing, just different representation. But what's interesting is, do you see the rings on the back side of that, of that bull? Guess how many rings are there? Can you count them? When you see it, tell me. How many rings are there? There's ten rings. There's ten rings. Well, somewhere in Scripture, if you've read it before... You hear about the ten kings that rises up, right? This beast with ten horns, and another little horn rises up from among them, okay? Now think about that, because I want to read you an interesting article. This is um, Emmanuel Macron, who is the French prime minister, kind of a young, you know, kind of a hip guy, right? Um, and this is from Daniel 9, if you want to do some research, right? Impatient with German foot-dragging, and defense, the French President Macron is going to bring together a ten-nation coalition of the willing next month in June designed to prepare Europe for their own armed forces to be able to take action in times of emergency. In other words, they don't want to worry about what Great Britain says. They don't want to worry about Germany says. They want to have their own defense force. Ten nations. France, the UK, Germany, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal, Denmark, and Estonia are all going to be at this summit to sign this agreement to have their own defense force. Now, you go, well, that's just coincidence. Well, maybe it is coincidence, but the scripture's pretty clear. There's going to be ten nations that rise up, and somebody from those ten nations is going to rise up and be the person that the world is going to follow after because he will have the answers to everything. So the idea is, it's getting ready. I mean, they're even ready. They're designing everything to get ready. We got another one up here? Yes, no, maybe? Maybe? Nope. Okay, I must have forgot one then. Okay, so, Europe is getting ready. Now, in Daniel, it talks about um, the prince who is to come, okay? In Daniel, it talks about that. The people of the prince who is to come was going to destroy the temple. Well, guess who destroyed the temple in AD 70? Was it the, uh, the Spanish? No. Was it the, the British? Well, kind of, yeah, okay? It was the Roman Empire. They destroyed the temple in AD 70. And the scripture in Daniel says the prince of the people that is to come. So that lets us know, whoever destroyed the temple in AD 70, that lineage, that leader, that little horn that's going to rise up comes from that same people group, the Romans. And isn't it amazing that this European Union, they're all from Europe? Now, there's an east leg and a west leg. We've got to remember that. There's the eastern leg of the Roman Empire and there's the western leg, okay? The, the eastern leg is primarily Muslim. The western leg is primarily atheistic now. Okay? But the idea is that's where it's rising from. And it's, re- it's right at the door. They're getting everything set. Their whole parliament building, their currency, on the back of their currencies on some of the denominations, have the bull, have the woman riding the beast. Their stamps. Okay? I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, the, the French president also said that it is time that the European Union takes its rightful place, that no other nation in the world, including the United States, is able to lead them into the new world that's coming. So they're getting things set. 
Now, also think about this. The nation of uh, the, the European Union, which was the bastion of Christianity, there are more Muslim mosques in Europe right now than there are Christian churches. The vast majority of the churches are now mosques. So their, their lack of knowledge, their lack of understanding, their lack of biblical training is going to open them up for that man of sin that steps in. What one generation accepts or tolerates, the next generation will embrace it. Now, why do I say that? Because here as a church, the American church specifically, we have tolerated so many things, not only doctrinally, but socially in our country. We need to stop being a church that tolerates and accepts sin. We love people. We love them. But we want to love them in the direction of Jesus. Because if we continue to tolerate what's out there, the next generation will accept it. And as we see, there are mainline denominational churches now that are accepting all forms of things that we used to call sin, and it's in the church today. So we need to wake up. Remember, Isaiah that we first read, God wants us to know the end from the beginning. He doesn't want us to be spiritually asleep. He wants to bring us into the understanding of who he is. Now, I've got a lot more stuff here, but I'm going to have to wrap it up. And so what I want to end with is this. Are you ready? Do you know that he knows you? Remember, we talked about that at the beginning. It's not that I have a head knowledge. I have a heart knowledge. I have a relationship. And the second thing is one of our verses, that my favorite verse that we have on all of our, our checks is Romans 10.9. How do I know if I'm saved? How do you know if you're saved? And if you're watching online, how do you know if you're saved? How can you become saved? It's real simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But notice there's a word in there. Believe. You must believe. And that word is the Greek word pistuo. And it's not just to believe something. It's to put total faith and confidence in. That's what it means. Is your confidence in your job? Is your confidence in your bank account? Is your confidence in your, your great family and wonderful marriage? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, all those things can be taken away at the drop of a hat. Families can break up. People can die. Bank accounts can go. Trust me, I know. But there's one who that you can put your trust in. There's one who you can put total faith and confidence in, and that is Jesus. He is the one. So uh, as the worship team comes up, I want to ask you the question again. Have you put your total faith and confidence in Jesus? Again, you could have been in church your whole life. I was five years old when I started going to church. But I honestly, and I've shared it with the men in our group, I don't think I knew who Jesus really was and had a personal relationship with him until I was maybe in my late 30s. So what was I doing all those years? I was putting confidence and faith in what I was doing. I was going. I was reading. I was telling people about Jesus. But I didn't know him here. So that's what I want to ask you today. Is your faith and your confidence in Christ alone or is it in something else? And don't be like me. Don't wait almost 40 years of your life basically living a fantasy. Take care of it today because we don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. We know we're close to the return of Christ. Just some of the things. That's just a drop in the bucket of everything that we can talk about. We could talk for days. But we know that when we begin to see these things, look up because your redemption is near. So we know it's at the door. But don't, don't be complacent. Don't leave here today if you haven't put your total faith and confidence in him. There'll be some folks up here to pray for you. If you need to rededicate yourself, come forward. I had the pleasure of 
my son rededicating his life about two or three months ago here, and my daughter-in-law. Don't be ashamed of coming down because the Lord's not ashamed to die for you, right? He bore everything for you. So come down. There'll be people here to talk with. Pray, they'll, they'll pray with you. If you've never accepted Christ, or you think, you know what? I was like you, Mike. I did all these things for years, but I never had a heart relationship. Make today the day of salvation. And if you just need to pray, if you've got something going on in your life, and you need prayer, the altar is open. So God bless you guys. Thank you. May the Lord go with you today and bless you. Father, we want to close by just invoking your name because we know, Lord, that it is only you that is worthy of any honor or any praise or any glory. And I pray, Lord, that right now our hearts are just laid open. And I pray, Father, that you would bring us to a point where we fall upon our knees and we submit all that we are to you, our hearts and our minds, and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.